Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, where we fill clinics with engaged patients who value the treatment they receive at your clinics. Hopefully, anyways. <laughs> so, this week we are doing a part two, a follow up, if you will, to uh, the last episode we did, which was healthcare recruiting. So, just kind of a brief recap. We've had a lot of talk lately about things like the great resignation, about high staff turnover, specifically in healthcare, and how primarily independent private healthcare clinics are having difficulties recruiting and retaining clinical staff. And during the last episode, I talked kind of about the what has led us to this point, the, the shift to non-clinical work or the focus on what I call this non-clinical tidal wave that we've seen, the idea of the fact that the pandemic, while being unique in and of itself, really didn't do anything different to the healthcare environment. It merely just accelerated some of the changes that were already coming our way, right? Clin clinician burnout, turnover, the fact that our reimbursement systems, this fee-for-service business model, just isn't sustainable in the long run, primarily because of the incentives it creates and all of that kind of thing, and how the pandemic didn't really bring anything novel. It just kind of accelerated some of those changes or pushed them to the to the brink, right? So now we're in a position where uh, staff are have either left clinical care entirely, maybe they've moved into utilization review or document audits or something like that, or they're just primarily disengaged from work, right? Um, or you've got those ones that have left clinical care or the healthcare industry entirely and they've gone into like insurance sales or real estate or something like that. Um, I don't really wanna rehash all of that again that's just kind of like setting up this next piece. So uh, obviously there's a problem. Clinician burnout is huge. There was the, the pandemic effects kind of accelerated this burnout and turnover that we saw, clinician attrition from the field. Um, and now we're kind of at the point where, where do we go from here? What, what does the future of healthcare recruitment look like specifically on frontline clinical staff? Because for the most part, at least the experience that I've had consulting with with organizations across the country and even in the own in the, in the clinic that I run and operate, um, administrative staff doesn't seem to be turning over at the same clip as the frontline clinical staff. Most um, most front office people or back office billing and, and that kind of thing have been relatively stable, probably because their their job hasn't changed a whole much. A, a whole lot, right? It, maybe the volume has gone down or maybe the workload has increased here and there, but it's not like uh, the change was not as drastic as it was for frontline clinical staff, right? 
So primarily speaking about licensed clinicians, clinicians that we would get in the door to treat patients in a traditional sense. The question is, where does that leave all of the, all of what we covered in the last episode, the turnover, the attrition, the non-clinical work, the, you know, the pendulum swinging that way? Where does that leave the healthcare industry when it comes to recruiting and retaining clinical staff? If you're looking at the headlines and the social media posts, then you probably think the outlook is, is pretty bleak, right? We regularly hear about clinician burnout, attrition, and the difficulty firing, finding uh, and hiring clinical staff. I tend to be an eternal optimist, as one of my uh, former business partners used to say. <laughs> um, the way I see it, there are a few big factors that will hopefully improve the recruiting outlook for healthcare if you can latch onto them and implement them in your organization. So um, I think I mentioned in the last episode about this idea of will there be a correction on the non-clinical side of, of the world? So you have all of these clinicians who left clinical care. They didn't want to treat patients anymore. They were tired of working in like a, a, a patient mill where they're cranking high volumes of patients out at substandard care. So they decided to go into something else. Maybe they went into utilization review. Maybe they went into like healthcare tech and software development and product management and all that. The question is, can the market bear that on one side, like is there going to be a continued market for this non-clinical work of these clinical staff, or um, will there be a voluntary correction on the part of the staff that have left, right? Um, and I think there's going to be a little bit of, of twofold uh, going on there. So you're going to have clinical staff, and I mentioned this in the last episode, that they left patient care because they were unhappy with the environment. However, they very much see healthcare and their decision to choose healthcare as a profession more of a, as of a calling or a vocation than as a career choice. So those clinicians are going to want to maintain some level of clinical contact or clinical experience going forward. Maybe they don't want to do it full time anymore. Maybe they don't want to be in the clinic five days a week, but kind of like myself, there is something about seeing patients regularly that one continues to bolster the insights that you're receiving about the healthcare industry, but then also makes you feel connected with your, your personal mission and purpose as a, as a healthcare professional, right? So there are going to be some of those clinicians that have left clinical care, um, really out of frustration of the current state of affairs, but they're going to want to continue to see patients. And what you might end up seeing, and I, I mentioned this in an article that will probably be posted to the website by the time this episode comes live. It's going to be called, uh, the working title here is uh, Recruitment Troubles, uh, Clinical Staffing and Healthcare. And you can find that at RehabUPracticeSolutions.com. Just click under uh, Insights, Articles, and it should be there. Um, so uh, there's going to be these... Uh, these clinicians who chose healthcare, or really, like I say, healthcare chose me, so they, they see their work as a healthcare professional as more of a calling. Those people, while desiring and while probably enjoying some of the work they're doing now in the non-clinical side of things, will feel a pull to come back into the clinic. And as I mentioned in this article, these people probably won't come back into full-time capacity but it provides a lot of opportunity for per diem employment or per diem staffing. Now, 
Um, I also mentioned this in the article. It's not, it might not be ideal to have an entire team built around per diem staff. However, it might be, it might be the option that you find yourself <laughs> having to utilize, especially if you run a smaller independent private practice or something like that. And then on the other side of the coin, you have, will the market continue to bear this influx of non-clinical clinicians, right? Are there really that many product development jobs out there for all of the clinicians that want to get out of direct patient care to take? Are there really enough utilization review jobs or uh, document audit jobs or whatever the, the, the case may be, quality improvement officers? The reality is no, right? <laughs> um, healthcare already, especially in the outpatient world, <clears throat> the outpatient healthcare world is already a fairly strapped. There's a lot of overhead, right, in healthcare. Primarily, that overhead comes from administrative burden and from uh, payroll. So the idea that an organization is going to be able to hire a lot of licensed clinicians at the rate of licensed clinicians to do non-clinical work is just not sustainable in the long run. One that, that you need to see, you need to have clinicians see patients, right? Especially just given the business model that healthcare is under, this fee-for-service model. Um, I hate to say it, but like if you're not drilling, you're not billing. So there is going to be this this push, especially in healthcare organizations that are operating under this traditional healthcare business model, that they need to they need to see patients. They need a bill for the services they're providing. So they can't have this bloated administrative team or administrative staff. So, um, and then there's a whole piece about like the healthcare tech and what happens if and when this recession hits and investment dries up, the venture capital funds dry up, what happens to these organizations that have tr been trying to build some kind of healthcare tool or healthcare technology and now they no longer need all these clinical staff because they, their funding dries up or, or whatever, some kind of shift in the economy. Um, I'm not predicting this huge recession or anything like that. It's just, you know, stuff happens, um, especially when you're dealing with venture-backed industries, right? Bubbles burst sooner or later. And the question is, well, is there going to be a bur bubble that bursts that leaves all of these clinicians who had, quote unquote, gotten out of clinical care, now they're doing non-clinical work for these software companies. What happens to them after there is no job for them in this tech field? Do they do they all come running back into uh, clinical work because it's a safe bet. They've got a clinical license. It's always a job. That's one of the things that they tell you when you're going into any kind of health professional uh, school or program is you'll always have this clinical license, so you're always going to get a job. And I can't remember, I can't remember which episode it was, but we had the optometrist that that started the the company Build My Team, and he, it's a healthcare recruiting company. Um, and he kind of mentions in that episode, in that conversation that, well, why do people go into healthcare? Yes, you've got the, you've got the portion of people who went into healthcare because they, f they see it as a calling, they see it as a vocation, but then you have another segment of healthcare professionals who went into healthcare because they were told it's a safe, secure, stable job, right? You're always going to have this clinical license. There's always going to be sick people. There's always going to be a demand for your skills. So the question is, well, if something busts in the healthcare tech industry, 
the the venture capital money dries up or you know something happens either on a regulatory change or maybe an economic level um, and that there just isn't that much demand or appetite for investing in those types of tools anymore what happens to those clinicians well i mean arguably you could say that the ones that went into healthcare because it was a safe secure stable job would come back right however my thought on the on the matter is if they were looking for safe secure stable jobs they probably didn't leave traditional care in in search of these these non-clinical jobs right i think that the ones the the clinicians that left traditional care to work in healthcare tech were probably more uh risk tolerant and entrepreneurial in nature anyways so i don't necessarily know if if a correction in in the healthcare tech space or some kind of bubble bursting in the healthcare tech space is going to lead to this influx of clinicians maybe in the per diem side of things but i don't think so in the long term so um those are my thoughts on the correction side like i said in the last episode i don't think um, I don't think the pendulum is going to swing back hard the other way. Um, it's probably going to be more in the middle. And like, I, like I've said a couple times, I think we're going to be dealing with maybe more clinicians that are going to leverage that license of theirs, that, um, that professional license, to, to do some of that per diem work. Because, it's, again, you pick up a, a weekend shift here or there and you can make decent money and it allows you to do whatever the entrepreneurial venture or the non-clinical work that you're wanting to do. Right. I've got a, a friend right now who, <clears throat> um, well, I've got several friends in the healthcare field, obviously, because I'm a clinician, but whose, whose spouse might be a nurse or something like that. And they work like one weekend a month and that gives them some money, but then it also allows, uh, allows them to do some side business or, um, or non-clinical work, non-clinical business on the, on the regular weekday. Right. So there's going to there's always been some of that especially with licensed clinical staff that have more flexibility like PRN work at a hospital or something like that. So how about the move to hybrid care and staff recruitment? Well, um, I've been an advocate of virtual service delivery methods in telehealth basically before the the pandemic. It was when I was at the Department of Veterans Affairs back in who this is 2013ish. 2013, 2014 is when this program really kicked off. But we had, so the way the VA system worked is you had the, the hospitals and then you had CBOX, which were community-based outpatient centers. The federal government is all about their acronyms, right? <laughs> so we would have um, one hospital and maybe three or four CBOX spread throughout. And the way it would work is the hospital was kind of like in a big metro area and then the CBOX were out more in like, uh, rural communities. So I lived in Augusta, Georgia. So we had the Augusta Hospital, and then we had a CBOC uh, somewhere outside of Athens, Georgia, which is kind of a more the surrounding area is pretty rural. I think there was a CBOC like in Statesboro, again more rural. And even back then, those CBOCs had limited services. They had primary care. They had a pharmacy, and I think they had some labs, some basic lab work. But all of the specialty care was at the main hospital. So the option for these, um, the option for these veterans was to either travel into the 
into the main hospital to receive an in-person appointment, or if they couldn't uh, travel, there was either the option for like community care and all that, but we're going to put that aside. Those that wanted to remain in the system, we would do telehealth. We do virtual, we didn't call it telehealth at the time. We called it like virtual appointments or something like that, which was the, the same basic thing. It was a heads up video display. And I remember doing uh, wheelchair evaluations for one of the CBOX um, out of our uh, Augusta clinical office, our, our Augusta clinic. So they would the the veteran and their spouse or the veteran and their caretaker would come to the to the C box. So it was obviously from like a end to end encryption standpoint. The VA was very very big as they should be on uh, cybersecurity and all that kind of stuff. So it was in a secure place, and uh, they would show up. We would you know do a wheelchair evaluation virtually. We'd write up the report. We'd send it off. We'd connect with a an ATP. Uh, in their local region that could go and take care of them and, and make whatever adjustments needed to be made, right? And uh, that wheelchair evaluations was probably just one of the ones we did a lot of, but we did all kinds of care that way virtually. So I've always thought that virtual service delivery was going to be not the way of the future as in nobody will ever be in the in the clinic anymore, but it was going to be a core component a tool in the toolbox, if you would, that you would use for any patient based off of their needs and their circumstances and whether or not it makes sense, right? Some people it makes sense to bring into the clinic. Some people it makes sense to only see virtually. And a lot of people probably make sense to do a little bit of both, right? Maybe you come into the clinic for an eval. Maybe you do follow-ups via virtual method, right? And we're not even talking about synchronous versus asynchronous virtual service delivery, which I think in and of itself is going to be a, a pretty big area of expansion over the next several years, but hybrid care was going to be the standard no matter what. And then the pandemic happened and that really, really accelerated. Things that we never thought would be approved to be uh, done or completed virtually became completed and <laughs> done virtually simply by necessity, right? We weren't allowed to have people in the clinics, so we began opening up avenues for virtual service delivery. Um, Again, hybrid care gonna be the gonna be the the future going forward. Um, so the question is, how will this impact recruitment and retention? Well, telehealth opens up the door to one additional revenue streams, if, especially if you're a smaller clinic. Um, it allows you to leverage some of that value-based reimbursement scheme. So especially some of these quote-unquote value-based reimbursement programs, where you maybe just get a lump sum per diagnosis or something like that. Telehealth visits can be um, quicker, shorter, and decrease the administrative burden, so to speak. So instead of paying a clinician for an hour of their time, maybe they can complete something via telehealth. Since telehealth, we've written an article about this. It's on the site. It's called Tapping into True Value. But um, a telehealth appointment doesn't necessarily need to be the same hour that you would get is I'm speaking primarily to like physical medicine and rehabilitation that you would get in like a PT clinic for an hour because a lot of what you're doing in telehealth is really knowledge translation. It's self-management. It's um, giving the patient the tools that they need, the empowering them to do what they need to do on their own. So those appointments can be much shorter time-wise, but still have the same, if not a greater impact on the value side of things. So for organizations that are participating in excuse me, participating in value-based reimbursement programs where maybe they're getting a lump sum per diagnosis, 
moving to a hybrid care model can make a lot of sense financially. And then also you're, you're doing what you need to do to, to improve the, the clinical outcomes as well. If you're focusing on that self-management, on uh, empowering the patient or giving the patient they, the skills they need to care for themselves going forward, that obviously has been shown in the literature to be more effective in the long run, especially for things like chronic musculoskeletal pain and the like. So anyways, it allows... Uh, so this hybrid care allows that tapping into those revenue streams and value-based reimbursement schemes, but it can also decrease the productivity demands on the clinicians because, from again, from a financial standpoint, you hate to pull it all back to finances and money, but we're running businesses here. If you can make the, the value-based lump sum, if you would, stretch farther, if you would, or have a greater impact because you're able to decrease some of that burden through virtual service delivery methods, then it means that you can decrease some of the in-person productivity requirements in the clinic, right? Which can help decrease burnout and all that kind of stuff. It also allows greater flexibility for clinicians, both um, both in where the, wor- the work takes place, which I'll talk about more, but also in the physical demands of the job. Again, you're not lifting, you're not transferring, you're not doing a lot of the physical stuff if you're doing some hybrid work. And more and more, healthcare clinics and organizations continue to make virtual service delivery a standard component of care. So we'll likely see an influx in clinicians who would have left frontline clinical work a long time ago, and they'll stick around more because they get this hybrid delivery role. It's not so physically demanding as it was before, or maybe the productivity requirements aren't as high as before. You're not cranking patients through this mill. Um, so the break from... Uh, in-person or face-to-face care may also help decrease that burnout and work-related stressors that we often experience in healthcare. So again, I see it really as a, as a positive in the long run. So the question is, again, how do we win at that healthcare recruitment and retention? I think I mentioned a, a few of these in the last episode, but I want to talk about three main areas, and those areas are, are flexibility, autonomy, and then skill building and men- mentoring. So um, flexibility. Many of my clients and even myself have, have noticed some of these trends in the healthcare staff. Part of it is, as I mentioned before, some of these clinicians that went totally into non-clinical care feel the call to come back, right? But they don't want to come back full-time into the clinic. They want to do maybe a couple days here, a couple days there. They want to do per diem work. So what what we've noticed here is that there are a lot of areas where posting a full-time clinical position gets zero applicants, right? But posting a contract or a PRN or a per diem job gets tons of applicants. Um, many clinicians are now searching for more flexibility in work. It also, this move to kind of this per diem work <clears throat> also helps attract those cl- clinicians who are already involved in that non-clinical work, but they want to maintain some of that clinical experience, right? As I've often said, uh, many people who choose healthcare as a profession see it more of a calling than a career choice. They went to school to help people, and while remote and non-clinical work opportunities provide the flexibility they desire, these positions often lack that person-to-person interaction that makes healthcare kind of a fulfilling career, right? So they're looking for that, but they don't want to be sucked into this patient mill deal again, right? So they're going to back up a little bit more and they're going to try to do 
uh, you know, keep a clinical day here or there. This is not anything crazy or like out of left field. I remember when I was teaching at the university, there were plenty of clinicians who were teaching their full-time academics, but they wanted, they realized that part of what made them valuable to the students, part of what made their insights valuable and why students listened to them more than maybe other professors is that they still treated patients once a week. They still held a day in the clinic. So not only were they up in front of a, a class lecturing about, you know, evidence-based practice or what you have to do in healthcare, but they were able to pull in examples that they had seen yesterday in the clinic, you know, as an example. And the the students really value that. I remember I was never a a professor full-time without any kind of outside work. When I even when I was a a, a full-time assistant professor at a, at a university. I was still doing a lot of the clinical consulting that I was involved in, uh, and, I, and I do now. So when I got reviews from students at the end of the semester, you know, you ask for the, the students rate the professor, they rate the course, all of that. Nearly every single student that left a review mentioned something about the fact that he's not just an academic. He's not just a... Um, he's not just somebody that's removed from the profession. He's actually doing it and he uses those examples every day in class. Now, <clears throat> that wasn't unique to me. It's not because I'm super awesome. It's just because in my course of work, I was still doing some clinically related work and that brought, I was able to bring those insights to bear in the classroom. So it makes you more valuable of a, of a professor. I find the same thing to be true, both in the consulting work that I do and in some of these non-clinical work like uh, software product development and engineering and the, and, the, and the like. When you are a clinician, you just have a better sense of what clinicians want to see in a tool, what patients want to see in a tool. Uh, you know, you can make the tool more relevant because of your relevant experience, right? The farther and farther you become removed from that in clinic work, the less relevant those insights are and the less valuable they are to the organization. So, um, work schedule flexibility. What we want to do is moving forward, we, we're probably going to see an influx, and we already have seen a greater influx in this per diem type of job hunter or, or clinician looking for this, you know, couple days a, a week here or a day a week there. So one of the ways to, again, like win at this recruitment game is to begin just offering more per diem work. And yes, I know it's not ideal to have like a team of PRN people or people that are per diem. Um, but what many of my clients have done, what I've done at the clinic I've, I've run is that we have like a core team made up of a few core clinicians who are full-time that are there every day. And then the rest is patched in with a bunch of per diem folks. And we do our best to make everybody feel part of the team. And maybe that's an episode in and of itself about how to make per diem and, and PRN staff feel like part of the team instead of just contractors that are coming in. And there is a way to do it that is really effective. I've seen it done very effectively and I've seen it done very poorly. <clears throat> but Another area that has seen some success in recruiting and retaining clinical staff involves where some of the brain work gets done, right? So again, report writing documentation, depending on the, the security measures you have in place, your device options, allowing clinical staff to complete reports and documentation offsite allows frontline clinical staff the ability to get some of that flexibility that they want and that they've experienced in remote work 
likely over the last couple of years without taking them out of the clinic entirely. So um, we've, I've had clients that have, have set up programs where their frontline clinical staff, once they hit X number of, of patients seen in a day, or you know, some have done units build, whatever the time might be, it might be utilization, then they can go home and work on their notes from home. And you know, again, there's, there is a lot here that you can un- unpack about security, device security, um, incentives, and how you're paying these people. I'm not gonna unearth or unpack and like fix all that here, just throwing it out there as an option that the, the ability to do some of the, the brain work or the knowledge work of healthcare, the document writing, the report writing, the billing, the, the charging, all of that doesn't necessarily need to be done in the clinic. Um, so again, take that for what it's worth. On the, the topic of autonomy and independence, again, one thing that, that comes out or that came out of this big shift to remote work was the fact that clinicians were giving a lot, given a lot of autonomy in the projects that they did, how they did it, all of that kind of stuff. Again, it can be something that's a little bit more difficult to achieve in the in-person clinical context. However, um, I mean, you got patients, the patients are scheduled when they're scheduled, right? However, finding ways to allow clinicians to exercise some autonomy in their work does a great job of both boosting team morale and then improving clinical retention. So perhaps it involves something as simple as allowing a team of clinicians to execute a specific program in the clinic. So this is going to be an example from the PTOT world because that's those are my peeps. That's where I spend a lot of my time, right? Um, I had a client one time recently here who uh, took a team of their of their clinicians and just gave them a free reign. Well, what do you want to develop? And they developed a program of some kind uh, around running and running performance. And um, the what they ended up developing was a series of protocols and uh, kind of operation or clinical guidelines for uh, rehabbing runners from various, you know, some of the common injuries, plantar fasciitis, uh, chondromalacia patella or knee pain or, or issues like that. So they had these kind of like, all right, this, you know, the six week program to recover from plantar fasciitis, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> or the, you know, the four week program for knee pain from running or wh- whatever it happened to be. Right. So they had a series of these programs and then they also developed kind of a, a perform a running performance improvement or training program. So, and it all came about really because the owner of the clinic just allowed the clinicians some autonomy and independence said, you know, this is our mission. The mission of the organization was, you know, X, Y, Z, as long as it falls within that mission, let's, let's build something together. Right. Um, and then they simply marketed that new, uh, that new program or specialty and they saw a bunch of success. Now, something like this can be easily rec- replicable across various disciplines or specialties, um, but it also helps infuse like meaning and fulfillment in the clinician's work because now instead of just cranking patients out through you know through a mill or whatever, they're feeling like okay, we developed this program on runners. We have we're seeing a lot of runners now. We're kind of deepening our skill set. At the end of the day, people value growth and they value. Um, they value the ability to expand and grow deeper in their expertise and then bring that knowledge to bear on their patients' lives, right? 
And then the last area would be skill building opportunities and mentoring and then using that as a recruitment tool. So in the same vein as autonomy and independence, many clinicians value what they're going to get out of the job. Again, it's no longer like you've got this huge pool of clinicians you know, like wanting a, a job with your clinic. It's much more a two-way street now. It's, there's very much some professional discernment on both sides, both whether you want to hire that clinician and whether they want to commit to your organization. I find this especially true of uh, new clinicians. So those who have graduated probably within the last year to two years or so, they're young in their careers and they desire input and guidance for more skilled professionals. But one of the interesting things is that they're not necessarily looking for clinical expertise. They're not wanting to um, necessarily to, to be mentored by a hand therapist to learn all the ins and outs of providing clinical hand therapy. They're wanting some of those mentorship opportunities in sort of those non-clinical areas. They want to learn from business owners, managers, consultants. They want to learn marketing, uh, sales, uh, business administration, all that kind of stuff. And this is likely a result of what I mentioned earlier and the kind of the push into non-clinical work. However, it does provide an opportunity for practice owners um, and managers to looking to recruit and retain clinical staff. So providing both mentorship opportunities as well as work responsibilities that are outside of that direct patient care benefits the the clinicians and the organization. So um, another example, I had a client who hired a clinician to do part-time clinical work and then part-time, they just called it business development work. It was really just marketing the clinic, right? Over time, that staff member kind of grew their skills in uh, marketing and business development and really grew out of the, the clinical practice role and took on kind of the CMO role of that organization. The client was happy because they weren't paying some big marketing firm to do a lot of the business development for them. And the clinician was happy because they kind of grew and expanded their horizon and their skill set. And they were still, I think last time I talked to them, the the staff member was still treating patients one or two days a week, but the mo- the majority of their work now was the marketing and the sales and the business development side of that clinic. Now, there's no reason to think that every hire will want something like that. Um, and many, as I've said before, will continue to, to want some kind of direct patient care work. But it's a good example of thinking outside the box and meeting staff members where they're at in building out career a career path for them that benefits both the organization and the team member. Again, it, it, it's, it's a two-way street these days, right? <coughs> Excuse me, I'm coming over a cold or something like that. So at the end of the day, there's obviously a ton that can be said about recruiting and retaining healthcare staff. Obviously, we didn't even touch things like pay and reimbursement schemes and, and any of you know, monetary incentives and any of that kind of stuff, because that's, again, kind of a topic of a, different, of a different vein. This is really just what can we do about the organization, the culture of the work, the, me- the method of doing the work um, that can help retain and attract some of that talent. Um, one thing is certain, the pressures of our current healthcare system will continue to push uh, frontline clinical staff to the point of apathy and burnout, right? I mean, this fee-for-service model is not, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon. We're trying to move into some of these value-based reimbursement programs, but they've got problems. So as there continues to be more consolidation in in the healthcare market, you've got big organizations that are now growing by acquiring independent 
healthcare organizations and what they're doing basically is turning them into high volume patient mills. A lot of that burnout, that stress, that apathy is going to continue. It's going to try, it's going to push some of these frontline clinical staff into leaving that frontline clinical care, right? Um, a move towards more of a per diem workforce may not be ideal, but it may be a way to maintain a fully staffed and productive clinic in the wake of this non-clinical tidal wave and the great resignation we keep hearing about, right? Allowing clinical staff more autonomy and independence or skill building opportunities may do more to retain those staff and maybe even build in another niche practice area or subspecialty program for a clinic. So again, I'm I tend to be hugely optimistic when it comes to the profession of healthcare. I mean that the the whole idea of the the book that I wrote, Better Outcomes: A Guide to Humanizing Healthcare. Shameless plug. It will be available uh, in print in October of 2022, but you can order it, pre-order it now on Amazon. So go do that. I'll put a link in the description. <laughs> um, but healthcare is a Healthcare is a, a vocation, it's a calling, it's a truly noble vocation, a noble career path, right? At the end of the day, it is one person helping another person. And everything that we can do as clinicians and business owners and um, healthcare organizational leaders to help make that human connection take the forefront is going to help everything from recruitment to retention and retaining um, really high quality mission oriented clinical staff, right? So we don't necessarily need to go and change the reimbursement models now. I mean, we would like to, right? Um, we don't need to change the regulatory um, environment, though we may, may like to. But there are small changes that we can make within our organization that provides that autonomy, that flexibility, the independence that some of these clinicians want while allowing them to live out their vocation as healthcare professionals. So hopefully between this episode and the last episode just provides a little bit of a, a springboard of discussion about how you and your organization can attract and retain high quality clinical staff, how you can do it in a way that continues to be profitable and meets the, the mission of your organizations. And if you wanna have a discussion about how uh, myself and Rehab You Practice Solutions can help you with that, um, I'd love to, to talk with you about it. You can find us www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. You can click contact us. If you click what we do, there's plenty of buttons there that you can schedule a call with me or just shoot me an email, Rafi, R-A-F-I at rehabupracticesolutions.com. That's rehab, the letter U, practicesolutions.com. Shoot me an email. Tell me what's up. Um, I'd love to have a conversation with you about what's going on with your organization and about if it makes sense to do any work together. Um, if you like the episode, uh, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and review. It helps people find us. Um, again, shameless plug. If you want to get a hold of the book, you can go to Amazon, just search Better Outcomes, A Guide to Humanizing Healthcare. It's available for pre-order now. Should be available in print the first week in October. I'm actually, when I'm done recording this, I'm going to go review the what is hopefully the final round of edits from the publisher. And we'll get that submitted early next week. And then we should be off to the races there. Um, until the next time, folks, be safe, be healthy. I'll talk to you then.
Thanks for listening to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.